Optophobia, the fear of opening one's eyes. This podcast is dedicated to encouraging you, our listeners, to move beyond that fear, to solve riddles they don't want us to unriddle, to investigate supposedly ironclad truths, to unearth evidence buried for so long they believed it would stay buried. Season 3. It started with a deranged Oregon magician who bit the head off a ferret during a holiday show for children. At least that's what we've been told. Since then, the disease called Kofefi-19 has raged across the globe. Yes, the virus has separated us, isolated us, shaken us. But it can't take away our sense of incredulity. We know that 5G cell waves make us more susceptible to the virus. That doctors Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci lead the medical wing of the deep state. And that Bill Gates is seeding the eventual vaccine with nanocrystals to track our locations 24-7. We've been told less about the Redmond Institute of Virology, an Oregon-based BSL-4-level biosafety facility that just happens to experiment with ferrets. This season on Optophobia, we'll track down the distortions, the assumptions, the omissions. Are you bored by the lies? Open your eyes. Hi, everybody. I am your host, Lawrence Zito. Kofefi-19 has clearly overshadowed and dominated our normal lives. But in some ways, it has served merely as the latest backdrop to the most important topic of conversation and debate that Americans have ever had, race. What if the U.S. government was using the Kofefi outbreak as a way to drag Americans backwards? What if protests and activism since the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and countless other Black Americans were just part of a plan by the government to use the pandemic as a time machine to take us 80 years into the country's past before the civil rights era. Our guest today has been exploring those possibilities in her recent writings, and so we will get to her in a minute. But before we meet her, I want to welcome my co-host for this week, aspiring bagel sommelier, Gino Romero. Hey, Gino. Hey, what's going on, Lawrence? How you doing? Good. How are things at uh, Everything But Everything Bagels? Uh, Everything uh, But Everything Bagels uh, is doing good. I actually am taking uh, sommelier classes. Oh. Well, here's a weird thing I found out. Apparently, you can be a sommelier for wine. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the traditional sommelier. Oh, see, I didn't know that. I thought sommelier was something just for bagels. So when my friend, when we were having having a, a, a Bordeaux, and uh, he said, you know, you know how you are with uh, bagels, how you can just take a bite out of a bagel with your eyes closed and tell me exactly what the flavor is. You can do that with wine, too, if you want. Now I'm drinking wine and I'm just I'm getting all the notes. One of the things that struck me last time we talked a couple of weeks ago was how many 
I know that your your specialty is plain bagels. Yeah, that's my specialty. But how many different bagels are made by that I had never heard of by everything but everything bagels? Like you mentioned brand muffin bagels, which I had never heard of. Yeah, there's uh there's there's a lot of bagels that a lot of people don't know are flavors for bagels. There's brand muffin bagels. There's just paid bond bagels. That one again? It's a just paid bond bagels. So it's it's any bagel you get after you've paid bond and got out of jail. That bagel has a very specific flavor. It's like when you've been starving for five days, right? And then you eat anything. You're like, this is the best food ever. So that's a just paid bond bagel. It's a very specific taste. Actually, kind of hard to make. You've got not this again bagel, which is uh where you make the mistake of ordering the same bagel that you ordered last time that you hated, but you haven't been to everything but everything bagels in a while. So you forgot your order. Right. So we've got that bagel. It's actually a very popular bagel. And what's that called? Not this again? Yeah, not this again. Because when you bite it, you go, oh, not this again. Right. <laughs> and then uh, I think uh, one of the last ones is uh, no shoes in the house bagels. No shoes in the house? Yeah. It's uh, for people who – you ever been to your friend's house and they, as soon as you walk in, they like obsessively, compulsively say, take off your shoes. We don't allow shoes in this house. Yeah. Uh, so that's the kind of bagel that this is. It's uh, You eat it and you're like, I, I can't finish this bagel with my shoes on. I got to take my shoes on, off, and like, respect the bagel, respect the time I'm taking to chew. Like It's one of those bagels that kind of like just gets you into the vibe of like, I really just suck this down and like enjoy it and live my life by someone else's tyranny. So you could, because you... Are, you're not yet a, Somali, a bagel sommelier, but you're you're getting there. You could actually taste any of these with your with blindfolds on. And oh yeah, yeah. That's actually um. So as I'm learning to become a sommelier for bagels, I've actually started the blind testings, and so uh, right now I'm I'm three for three. So the next one I'm tasting is is an alimony bagel, which is a bagel <laughs> that pays dividends. So if you're told what the bagel is before you taste it. How are you able to then say that? That's- because I still have to like verify. So it doesn't matter that someone might come up to me and say, hey, I'm, I'm giving you not this again bagel. And then I eat it and I'm like, oh, this tastes like a not this again bagel. They've then like, correct. Someone could still be tricking me. I don't know. My eyes, uh, you know, I'm blindfolded. So someone could just be saying that. Yeah. So it's not until I put it in my mouth and taste the notes and really start being like, oh, not this again. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's a thing that people say at the shop. Not this again. That's a, this is a not this again bagel. You're sort of at the confirmation stage of the sommelier training, where you're confirming what's in your mouth, but you're not. You're, it's not like a wide blind test taste. I, they call it QAQC, quality assurance, quality control. Okay. Well, it sounds like you've had a busy week. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm always busy. I'm always busy. Unfortunately, the uh, guest we had scheduled for this week, Horntown, Oklahoma-based freestyle lieutenant barista. Sagaponic LaRousse was unable to make the show. LaRousse has garnered some attention in recent weeks for her belief that in the months after a vaccine is finally distributed, the world will be reorganized by color scheme rather than nation states. Unfortunately, LaRousse got a bad steam burn at her coffee shop, Horntown Grounds, when she was frothing milk for an eggplant dusted latte. So, We will try to rebook Sagaponic for another show, but we were really, really fortunate to find a great guest at the last minute. 
Susie Johnson is with us from her home in Berkeley, California. Susie, thank you for being on Optophobia. Thank you, Lawrence. I am happy to be here. Yeah, so I am Susie Johnson, PhD, anthropologist at the University of Berkeley. I've been studying gentrification for the last 10 years. And during this time, most of my research has happened in Oakland, California, as you're probably aware, filled with gentrification. And and now that we're here during the time of Kofefi, I feel like I have to change all of my research, but I'm, I'm really excited to be here today. Berkeley is a historically really important progressive place, and obviously it's a great university. So you're a professor there? Yes, I've been a professor here for over 10 years. And are you from Berkeley originally? Uh, yes, I am from Berkeley. I grew up here, and it's been very fascinating to watch the way that the Bay Area has changed over the last 45 years. You know, we have a bagel that's a, a gentrification uh, bagel. It's a, It starts its life out as just a poppy seed bagel, and then if you order a second one, I just rub off more of the poppy seeds. So it just big more and more the black stuff gets rubbed off. That sounds right about right. I've always pictured bagels to be the the food of gentrification. So that you all have one makes perfect sense. What does the gentrification bagel taste like? So it tastes like someone else's history that uh, you're moving into, and then complaining about the uh, current cultural uh, significance of that area. That's what it tastes like. If I had to put it in the words. Other than that, it, it tastes like a plain bagel with not so many poppy seeds on it. But what I will say is that to us Black people, what it actually tastes like is like environmental racism, you know, just a quick breath of nasty pollution air that you've been forced to live with because you've been displaced from your home. The gentrification bagel must taste different depending on who's eating it. I, I assume so. I'm, uh, you know, I'm Romero, so I'm, uh, I'm Colombian. You know, I, I put hot sauce on everything, so... You put hot sauce on your gentrification? Yeah, right? I put hot sauce on everything, so it tastes like hot sauce. Good, so it, it masks the flavor of agony. Yeah, I, I, don't even, I don't even taste it. Perfect. So, Susie, what initially sparked your interest in anthropology? Why, why did you decide to go into that particular career? Well, I just saw it as a place where I could get to know people. I have never really been good with people in my life, I'm just a little bit awkward with others. And I thought anthropology could be a way for me to really learn some social skills. If I'm paying attention to other people's social skills, maybe, just maybe, I can learn some myself. And so I thought it would be a really good way. And so I've been able to just, you know, casually observe people when they're out on the streets and getting to know each other. And sometimes I even get to talk to them, which is like my favorite part. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, it's, it's really good. I'm like, oh, you're talking to me. Oh, okay, cool. And so my love of it has grown as I've gotten to know the different problems of the communities that I've gotten to study. Yeah. I mean, anthropology is one of those fields that I think most people don't even really know what it is or what it's about. Yeah. If I had to take a guess, I thought it was... Like you teach ants how to apologize. Mm. Yeah, I thought it's like colonies of ants learned how to apologize for like spilling out into the counter, like finding food that was left out and like coming into your house. So I thought it was like, you're like these, like someone's got to teach these ants some manners. Well, it, it sounds like you have 
Not the greatest grasp of Latin, but that's okay. We can't all be scholars. I don't. I don't. I I know a little about Latin America, but I don't know about Latin. That's, a, that's okay. It's It's been away from us for centuries now. Um, so anthropology is actually the study of people, cultures, beliefs, and values. Oh, wow. Yeah, not quite ants. I'm actually terrified of bugs, so I'm really glad that that wasn't my chosen path. So then what do they call the thing where they teach ants to apologize? It might just be called anapology. So it sounds like anthropology, but it's... Oh, maybe that's the confusion. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this actually is the study of people, history, cultures, and that's all wrapped under the same umbrella? It is. That seems like a lot for one subject. Susie, what particular field did you kind of lean toward as you learned more about anthropology? Yeah. So I mentioned a bit that I'm a little socially awkward. That's okay. Everyone listening, it's okay to be socially awkward. I'm not picking up any of that awkwardness. It has taken over a decade of practice, I promise you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So as a Black anthropologist and really just like, as a black girl growing up in Berkeley, shit was weird. It got really weird when I was really the only black person in my class. And I felt myself really wanting to get to know black people more. And as I did that, I found myself going to Oakland a lot and just following people around and listening to their slang and then trying it out for myself in front of my bedroom mirror. And I thought, oh, like I could be like this too. And when I went to college and I talked to my advisor, she was like, you know what? If you really want to study people, a really good way to do that is anthropology. So I thought it could be a good way for me to learn more about people who look like me, but who weren't exactly in my atmosphere. It kind of felt like it was a cool way to, you know, see what the others are doing. So uh, let me let me understand this. You were the only black person while you were studying in uh oh in Berkeley, Berkeley, in right? Berkeley, yeah. You were the only black. But wow, what's that like? Yeah, California in general and the United States in general is actually a pretty segregated country. And wait, what? Yeah, we're segregated. Hold on. I so I live. I'm from the Bronx, right? I see everybody. Right. I see black. I see brown. I see light brown. I see light black. I see all kinds of people. But you're telling me the majority of the country outside of like New York is is not that. And, you know, you're living in a city. Yeah. Cities are or were, you know, before Kofefi. Yeah. Exactly like what you were talking about, where there's integration and people of different colors all surrounded by each other. But the rest of the country pretty segregated and Berkeley being a very elitist, very like hoity-toity. Hoity-toity, okay. Let me stop us right there for a quick break because we're starting to get into some of your uh, writing, Susie, about what is happening with Kofefi. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Susie Johnson. Okay, we are back with our guest for today, Susie Johnson. Susie, you were telling us about your life as an anthropologist, and you were just starting to talk about segregation, which is what you have been writing about as it pertains to Kofefi 
19 and the government's use of the pandemic. So maybe you can talk a little bit about some of those writings that you've done about segregation. Thank you, Lawrence. So actually in my first book, I was writing about gentrification. The first book is called Fuck the Rich. And I wrote about how gentrification is displacing marginalized communities and forcing them into places that are healthy, the effects that it has on their long-term health. And now we've seen with Kofefi that there are so many people who are moving out. Like after, after decades and decades of displacement of communities that originally belonged to specific cities, the people who have come to like take over their cities are now moving back to their hometowns. They're moving in with their families. They're going back to their suburban lifestyles. They are leaving cities behind. Which is also terrible for the bagel industry. I can imagine. We also love the community sense of, you know, people being around, coming in, stopping. And now those people are leaving. And so it, we're, we're getting ready to ramp up to start doing deliveries to where the people are instead of making them come to us. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like community outreach in a real way. And so you even felt the impact of this new wave of people moving outside of the city. No longer are the cities these integrated havens where oh, yeah. everyone can go. And, and, and finally, we're getting to a place where people who have been dislocated can actually, you know, live in peace and rent prices are going down in cities across the country. But I can't help but feel that it, it feels like everything we've been asking for. Like, let's get the gentrifiers out. Let's get the colonizers out. Um, let's just, you know, have our communities return to communities. And it kind of freaks me out that it's actually happening. Yeah. And so what's on my mind is, is why. Because I don't think the government would ever give us something that we're asking for without a price to pay. Never. Yeah, never. Never. So as people leave cities out of fear, out of maybe fear of each other. Fear of new bagel flavors. Yeah. There is a sort of a de-gentrification happening, but that's sort of too good to be true is what you're saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. And so let's take this to the next step that you've written about. What would the government get from de-gentrifying and potentially resegregating the American people? Yes. Segregation is the answer for the government. As people have started to integrate more and people get to know people of different colors and creeds and values, they find a humanity in them that they hadn't found before. And they're willing to fight for them in a way that they've never fought before. So as we've seen with people in the streets, with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, there's just too much camaraderie. There's too much of the people being together as one, yep. standing up to the police in brand new ways, yep. demonizing the police in new ways. We stopped selling blueberry bagels because of that. Good for you. People kept coming in being like, uh, blueberries are all that. The only kind of bagel I like, and we're like, we don't sell those anymore because it's supporting police brutality and whatnot. And we're not about that here. I had everything but everything bagels. And then they asked for everything bagels, and we said it's literally in the title of the store. We don't have everything bagels. So blueberry bagels support police brutality? Yeah, a lot of people don't know this, but every time you buy anything blueberry, it directly funds police departments around the country. 
So a lot of bagel places have stopped uh, producing. We've had our budget defunded to procure blueberries. So that means that the the blueberry industry must have ties to police unions? Yeah, that's why all the, the blueberries just, like if you look at a blueberry, it just looks like a fat cop who doesn't chase anyone. I confirmed that in my studies. We've actually seen that a lot of the owners of blueberry farms have been giving a substantial amount of money to police charities that, you know, every time a police officer shoots someone, they don't usually get fired. But when they do, a foundation takes up money, a collection for them and make sure that they're fine for the rest of those li- their lives. That's usually funded by blueberry organizations. If you really think about it, anytime you've ever been like to a friend's house or something, people bring over desserts or something. It's rarely ever blueberry. But if someone does show up with blueberry, they're making a political statement. Mm -hmm. Like I went out of my way to find blueberries and make a blueberry pie, which we all know doesn't hold together at all. They don't. They're gross. As soon as you cut into a blueberry pie, it's guts everywhere. And so this person said, I'm here so that everyone has to see these blueberries. But like for the most part, people bring apple pies, you know, pecan pies, things that are traditional and also like heritage based that are trying to make a statement. And, and I can say all these things have symbolism. It, it goes back to culture, right? So like when the blueberry thing really came around, when the Blue Lives Matter really became a, a phrase and the, the people in the blueberry farms were already like, this is, this is what we need to do to make sure we preserve our way of life. And so just like milk has a symbolism for the KKK, blueberries have a symbolism for the police. Yep. So Susie, when you're when you're observing these people of different races, different colors coming together to support one another, the government obviously fears that kind of unity. Correct. So Kofefi is being used by the government as a sort of like wedge in which to reinstitute some kind of segregation in society. Correct. Are there certain sectors of society? I mean, traditionally the segregation uh, if you think back to the 20th century, segregation happened in housing. It happened in schools. It happened in the military. Are there sectors of society that the modern gay government wants to start using that wedge and segregating us again? They're using the same tactics and strategies a lot of Americans are hurting right now. So just using that to get people in a place where they don't trust the government, especially in an election year so that people won't vote and so that people don't trust each other and that people put the blame on each other. And because a lot of Black people are being negatively affected by Kofefi, the blame has been put on them. So it's not a far off thing to associate those two things with one another. Yeah. So the government learned that the last time around things looked pretty good for them. So they're taking a page out of history and just reapplying it. Yes, because if you can hammer in on ideologies that have already worked for you and that a lot of people still believe, then why not use those same ones again and double down? Where do you think this is going to go? Like if this is just starting now with what the government is trying to do, kind of resegregate society, what do you think their ultimate goal 
is with the pandemic. Subjugation. Yep. It's much easier to control populations when they don't have contact with each other. It's much easier to say, you know, like my community doesn't have this. Why does your community have that? Oh, yeah. People are gathering around their cultures and are no longer surrounded by people who are different from them. And when that pride, like, rises between the different groups and then there's fights between the different groups, the government doesn't have much work to do. We can do it against ourselves. So this reminds me of uh, some of the neighborhood battles that uh, we have at Everything But Everything Bagels when people come in and they they voice their opinions about bagel flavors they like. And then, like, you know, because of how franchising works, some places, some franchises have different bagels than the other ones. Like, we don't serve sesame seed bagels, but other franchise stores do. So it's like some places are getting certain flavors, certain experience that, you know, other franchise store locations aren't getting. And so it's kind of like, uh, is that by design? Clearly it is, because why not just give everyone same access to the same menu, you know, but we're not. Instead, we're saying, you can't have sesame seed bagels here. We don't deliver cinnamon uh, chip bagels past 56th Street on the east side. Uh, hey, hey, you on Long Island, you you don't get any egg bagels because uh, you don't deserve it. It's it's similar in a way to the government trying to segregate us again because they're now they're going to hyper like highlight all the difference in access that was already there that we were talking about. But now it's like, okay, so now that I'm segregated, I definitely can't go to everything but everything bagels and get the bagel I want. You know, now I'm going to have to suffer through whatever flavors they decide to pick. You know, I'll tell you right now, as a as a bagel artist, I don't eat the bagels at my store. I drive to Manhattan so that I can get a cinnamon chip bagel. I love cinnamon. I want some brown in my bagel. You understand me? And I want some some sweet sugar. And I want to be like, mm, this brown sugar tastes so good. I want it in my mouth. I want to toss it around. And once it gets wet, you know, it gets a nice consistency. And it just melts in your mouth. That's what I want. But I have to drive to Manhattan. I got to go across the bridge. I got to pay $20 through the tunnel, right, to get to everything but everything bagels on 75th and 2nd Avenue. And it's worth it every time. But they should just have this bagel. In the Bronx. Yeah, that's an expensive bagel for you. Super expensive. It's everything told. The bagel is $2.75. The process to get the bagel is $35. So we got to wrap it up. But let me ask maybe both of you this question. As Americans who disagree with what Susie uh, has outlined, what the government is doing, what are the things that we should be doing in order to show our discontent Uh, with the government's actions? Should we be protesting in some way with our bagel choices? I think you have to demand that wherever you are, you want access to every flavor of the bagel. You don't just want access to every flavor they tell you you can have access to. You feel me? Like, I don't want to be told what flavor I'm allowed to have and grow up on and develop a taste for. I want access to all of them so that I can make my my own choice you know as a free person yeah and Susie, what do you think yeah do you know i think that's lovely i i think it's remembering that we each have our own personal power and that 
we don't have to listen to what the government is telling us. They are using this specific moment to heighten our feelings towards each other and towards people who we deem as others. So we can use this as an opportunity to learn some more, to read some books, to listen to some more podcasts. And if you do need to go home, go home. But if you don't, maybe try and meet some people who are different from you because the government has power, but you also have power as yourself. Yeah. And share a bagel with them. Yeah. Yeah. And not everything bagel. Well, we don't have those to share, but if you are going to share a bagel, I, I suggest you, you know, try a bagel that, you know, maybe you didn't grow up with so you can open yourself up to a new type of bagel. Okay. We are going to have to leave it right there for now. I want to thank our guest this week. Susie Johnson. Thank you so much, Susie. That was a really important conversation, I think. Thank you for having me. And of course, my co-host, Gino Romero. Thank you so much, Gino. Larry Zito, thanks for having me. So please join us next week when our guest will be Jill St. Jacques, who says it's no coincidence that Kofefi 19 was kicked off by a deranged magician. St. Jacques believes that the Great Baked Potato, also known as Ron Smate, pulled off the greatest magic trick of all time by putting the entire planet under hypnosis and leading us all to believe there's a mass pandemic. I hope you can join us. Thank you for listening to Optophobia. I'm Lawrence Zito, and I will leave you with this. If you roll around in the hay, you have to expect to get itchy. If you've got theories about Kofefi 19, we'd like to hear them. You can find us on our website, optophobia.org, or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at optophobes. And please subscribe and rate the show if you like it. Thank you to Lowe, who played Susie Johnson. Lowe is the author of To All the Places I've Had Sex Before, out on Amazon and Kobo. Follow her on Instagram at at Lowe the Author. That's at L-A-U-X, the author or find her at lowtheauthor.com. Jamal Newman played Gino Romero. Jamal performs with Lena Dunham and Nixon. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at at hellonewman and find him at jamalnewman.com. Optophobia was produced by Tim Townsend. Our music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Cover art by Claire Smalley. Website by Chance Griffin. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Keep them open.